All right, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Friday, October 20th. Um, I uh, I just got back from California yesterday, still trying to get my uh, my bearings straight. So right, I think we'll just hop right into it. What, are, what do you got for us this week? I got a real personal treat on, on my end, Ricky. So we have done in the past two years previews of the the upcoming term of the Supreme Court. And this particular term just got started here in October, and we are going to do another one of those preview episodes highlighting five of the major cases in front of the court this term, and also looking at some of the major themes of this court. And to do that, we are tremendously fortunate to be joined by Professor Renee Landers, who is a professor at the Suffolk University School Law in Boston. And she is my she is one of my professors, and that's why I, I am so thrilled to have her join because she was my constitutional law professor my 1L year. It was my favorite class that I, I took in law school. It was one of those for you'd sit there for almost two hours and I would be like, I could sit here for two more, four more. So like, it was just like, I, I loved having these conversations with her. And the fact that I get to continue to do this post-graduation, I feel very lucky that she's joining us. But in addition to my personal connection, she is a, a real expert in constitutional law, generally administrative law in particular, which we'll get into is going to be particular, particularly relevant for uh, this term of, of the court. And she, I think she's just going to be, because the court this term doesn't have some of these kind of major headline cases on guns or abortion or affirmative action, some of these cases might have fallen kind of beneath people's radars, but are still critically important. And I think Professor Landers is going to be able to provide us with some insight into these cases about why they're so important, why we should care so much and also educate us. So she's just a, she's a great teacher. And for not for myself and for the podcast, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have her on the program. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, for those listening at home, you can't, can't uh, see how, how big Brendan's uh, smile is <laughs> over here, but uh, I, I think it's going to be lend to a great discussion and I'm looking forward to it. I am very excited. All right. So before we bring her on, just a quick reminder, everyone, the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsman at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, one of the major cases this term has to do with boats, with fishing, fishermen. So my question for you today is where do boats that carry wood go? I don't know, Brendan. They go to the arbor. Ooh, that's good. That's good. I like that one. All right, uh, let's bring on Professor Landers. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Professor Renee Landers onto the program. 
Professor Landers is a professor of law, the faculty director of the Health and Biomedical Law Concentration and the Masters of Science in Law Life Sciences program at Suffolk University Law School in Boston. She was the president of the Boston Bar Association in 2003-2004, where she was the first woman of color and the first law professor to serve in that role. Professor Landers has also worked in private practice, and in the Clinton administration, she served as the Deputy General Counsel for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Policy Development at the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, she has also served as the trustee of, on Mass General Hospital and is a former trustee of the Mass Ioneer Infirmary. Uh, in 2009, she rejoined the Board of Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts, and she has become, since become the president of that board. Recently, she co-chaired the Boston Bar Association's task on judicial independence. She was a member of the Massachusetts Commission on Judicial Conduct. She also served on the task force that drafted the revised Massachusetts Code of Judicial Conduct. Uh, previously, she was a member of the Supreme Judicial Court's Committee studying gender bias and racial and ethnic bias in the court. She has also published numerous articles, served on numerous boards, and won numerous awards. We are thrilled to welcome Professor Landers to the program. Well, I'm very pleased to be here with one of the um, for my former excellent students in constitutional law at Suffolk University Law School. So it's really a pleasure to have this conversation with you again. Yeah, I mean, this I feel like this is just a conversation we've been having for three years now. And I'm exactly. thrilled even since I've graduated, we get to keep doing it. And so I, yeah, I am personally very pleased to be able to speak with you and continue talking about this stuff. But also, as I, I said to you and Ricky, I think you are perfect to do this to help our listeners understand some of these more complicated cases that are coming up. Uh, but before we get into the specific cases, I, I highlighted the parts of your bio where you were, you've worked extensively on like judicial codes of conduct and judi judicial ethics. And obviously what's been in the news during the, the, the recess of the Supreme Court has been these ethics investigations and this question of whether or not the, the Supreme Court should be bound by some sort of judicial code of ethics. So as someone that's worked extensively in your career in this area, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think it's um, actually quite shameful that the court has not adopted a binding code of ethics to apply to itself. I mean, every other um, judge in the country, Article Three judge, um, you know, administrative judges, um, state court judges have a binding code of judicial conduct to which they have to adhere. And, uh, you know, it's just just sort of defies logic that the Supreme Court should not subject itself to the same rules. The um, I was encouraged this week that um, Justice Barrett joined, uh, you know, the call for adopting a code, although she did say in the context that all of the judges, justices adhere to the highest standards of ethics and that obviously is demonstrably untrue. Um, so um, regardless of, you know, what you think of the politics of the situation, just even on the mere disclosure obligation alone that applies now, some of them are not doing it. So, and, and then the last thing I'll say, and then if, unless you, if you have other questions, that's great, but um, is that, um, you know, the, the Chief Justice Roberts and uh, Justice Alito, um, some of them have suggested that it would be improper and unconstitutional for Congress to require them to adhere to a code. And that just can't possibly be true. I mean, the financial disclosure requirements are a feature of statute, right? Uh, and they've agreed that they have to adhere to those. So I just don't understand that this argument. They're not telling them how to decide cases. Sure. And so what do you think 
the the holdout is like why hasn't this happened yet and i mean obviously like the cynical part of you would be like justice thomas and justice alito don't want to adhere to a, a code of conduct but it just seems particularly ricky and i have talked about this a lot where some of these decisions have been so controversial which has eroded some trust in the supreme court which i don't think the justices should care about personally like that's i don't think that's their job to care about like what, what the pe- majority think of their decisions but then when you pair the controversy over the decisions with all of the controversy about the ethics it just seems logical to me that they would want to reinforce like that part so what from your point of view what's the pushback on this well i mean i think i think two things i think there are probably some you know holdouts you know who just don't want to have to change i mean i think the reason they haven't been disclosing these because they know these things they've been doing look bad and so (laughs) by any stretch i mean abe fortas you know back in the johnson administration had to resign for taking far less in the way of you know financial you know gifts quote unquote from his friends so um so they know it looks bad and that's why they haven't disclosed and then second um i think that it's about power Right. You know that, you know, they like to have, you know, they kind of sit at the pinnacle of the judicial process in the country, co-equal, you know, um, among the other two branches of government. Uh, And, you know, the notion that someone else could actually circumscribe their behaviors, you know, I don't know, probably feels somewhat antithetical to them. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, Also, before we hop into the cases, now that this court is obviously still relatively new with Justice Brown Jackson for sitting for her first term and still Justice Coney Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, still relatively new members of the court. So what are you looking at just like big picture wise for this term of the Supreme Court? Well, I think, um, you know, on some of the cases that aren't, um, poli- you know, that don't have a, you know, sort of popular political valence, I think that, you know, that it's not always possible to predict what the alignments will be on the votes in some of these cases. I mean, you know, the obvious, uh, you know, example of that is um, Justice Gorsuch's opinion in in Bostock, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's almost become like a caricature, a caricature of it, but um, of the to illustrate the point but i do think that um on you know and in some of the statutory cases you know the decisions can be nine to nothing right and so i think that um even though you know the tone of some of the opinions seems really quite um antagonistic and argumentative uh, i do think that they still are trying to work together um you know to you know, reach decisions that are 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 reasonable. Um, the one concern I have is uh, the seeming disregard for uh, longstanding precedents, and you know, and I think some of the issues that we'll talk about today, you know, raise this issue as well. I mean, you know, if the Securities and Exchange Act, which has been on the books since 1934, has these profound constitutional flaws. I mean, this, this, you know, not we can't rely on anything about the structure of the way things have been, if that's the case. So I, I think that that is a, is a bit concerning. And some of them don't seem to have a lot of respect for that, these institutional arrangements. 
I think that's completely fair to say. All right, so let's get into some of these cases. So we're going to yes. start with uh, a pair of cases that I think are quite interesting and quite of this time, where the First Amendment social media cases, they're O'Connor v. Ratliff and Garnier and, Link and Linky versus Freed. Both of them, in their own way, are dealing with public officials who have blocked constituents on social media. And I'm glad the Supreme Court has taken this up because it, it's just a mess right now in lower courts. No one really knows how to handle this because this is very new. And so I'm, I'm very curious. I don't even know personally like wh how I feel these cases should come out. So I'm I'm curious like what you're looking for and what maybe if you have any personal opinions on on these sorts of issues. Right. So the first thing I should say is the First Amendment isn't actually my strong suit in constitutional law. So I will use that as a caveat. Um, so the court um, actually had a case earlier involving President Trump when he was president, who actually did the same thing. You know, he obviously right. famously was, you know, using Twitter to communicate with the American public and uh, and then tried to block journalists and others with whom he disagreed from his Twitter account. And um, the lower courts actually sided with uh, against, well, sided with the uh, the people who had been blocked that, you know, they did not side with President Trump on that. And so I think that in these cases, um, you know, for public officials, if they use their personal accounts to conduct public business, as opposed to exclusively for campaign purposes or something like that, then I think that um, they really are using them for governmental functions and they shouldn't be allowed to exclude people from them. I mean, that's just my personal view. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously sometimes, you know, the line drawing perhaps could get a little complicated, but I, I, I really think that that's what has to happen because that just, you can't have it both ways. Oh, it's my private account, but I'm going to communicate with the public this way. I, I just don't think you can have it both ways. I don't know. What do you what's your reaction to that, Brandon? Do you have any sense where the court's going to come out on these? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. Um, and, the, you know, they were very um, circumspect when they had the Trump case and then it was dismissed as moot because, you know, Trump was no longer the president. So I think that that um, uh, but that but I think they know that they have to decide it um, in, in in some way. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think the other thing that's coming down the pike, I think actually the Biden administration has asked them to take a look at that um, injunction against the government for, you know, kind of, you know, attempting to jawbone some of the social media companies on on, uh, you know, issues of public concern. And um, I think um uh, you know, and, 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 you know, the, you know, I'm not totally, you know, the government has always, you know, talked to journalists and media and said, you know, hey, don't publish that secret location of our military establishment, please don't do it, or you can do it in two weeks when it no longer is, you know, you know, of importance, the location or something like that. I mean, they've always done that. So this idea that somehow suddenly this is, you know, um, you know, you know, completely out of the realm of, um, you know, acceptable action just seems to be, I don't know, not really, you know, very appropriate. So um, anyway, so I guess the point is coming back to those cases about the public officials, like I said, I just don't think you can have it both ways. I think, you know, if you're going to use it for public business, even if it's not, you know, paid for by the government and, 
maintained and supported by the government or the government didn't say to you, you have to use your personal Twitter account to do these things. I think, you know, these are all the arguments that have been thrown up against, you know, saying that it's government action. I think you just have to look at, you know, actually functionally what people are doing with these accounts and and, and then make a decision on that basis. So I'm admittedly the least of all experts in, in, in this small group. But one of the things I was curious about is that it doesn't seem or it seems that the the blocking, whether it was Trump or the school board officials, is a way to prevent other people from kind of attacking them on their own page. I'm curious how uh, the I guess the ones bringing the suit here are impacted in a way that it doesn't prevent them from being on the platforms. It probably doesn't prevent them from getting information from these sources, even if it doesn't come directly from that page. It's probably, you know, if it's public information, it's going to be somewhere else. What are they really losing besides kind of the ability to be like there with the first person um, sort of posts? I, you know, that's a really good question, but I don't think the First Amendment regulation has ever rested on, well, you can get it somewhere else. So you, you know, you can't, uh, you know, we, we can, we can kick you off here or you can speak on another platform, right? So you can't do it here. And so, I mean, I guess the answer I would say is that these public officials, you know, they can have the government account and, you know, everybody gets to participate equally on that. And if they want to have a personal account, then the don't do government stuff on it. I, I mean, I would I would just draw that line. Um, and it's sort of, you know, and I don't think public officials, I mean, I think public officials are used to having to observe those lines, right? You know, they, you know, they don't use the government car, you know, to go on the family vacation, right? So I think this is, a, 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 you know, kind of a, you know, an iteration of that concept. But I think, I mean, I think that's yeah, that a good makes question. Sense. Yeah, I, I'm very curious to hear the arguments, but I, I think that's really well said, Professor Landers. It makes a lot of sense to me. So we do have another Second Amendment case, another one that I think is fairly interesting. So the issue here is many, if not most states, have laws that pro prohibit people who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders from possessing firearms. And this happened, I, I believe, in, in Oklahoma, uh, where a man who was under a domestic violence restraining order was convicted of possessing a firearm. And originally, the court had held like, that that was totally okay. But given the court's opinion in the New York versus Bruin case uh, back in June of 2022, they looked back at it and said, actually, given the reasoning the court laid out in that Bruin case, I don't think that laws preventing domestic abusers from having guns is actually constitutional. And so this is, I think this is going to be another fascinating case for, for this particular court of, obviously, I think on its face, most people would just be like, logically, people who are under domestic violence prevention orders shouldn't own guns. But on like the other hand is, and this is kind of the same argument why you would say like convicted felons shouldn't own guns. Like, are we depriving people of constitutional rights unjustly? So very curious, you're, you're, 
thoughts on this, Professor Landers? Yeah, so um, this sort of harkens back to your question at the outset. You asked about, you know, what kinds of things should we be looking for this term? And, uh, you know, both in Bruin in 2022 and in the Dobbs case, the abortion case in 2022, the court really heavily laid into the majority, this historical analysis of these rights. Mm -hmm. And I think the uh, Rami case, uh, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, is, um, uh, is, is really going to test, you know, the extent to which they're willing to adhere to that concept as a way to define rights. Because Regard, you know, you can say a lot of things about abortion. You can say a lot of things about, you know, guns generally, or you know, weapons, firearms generally. But one thing you can definitely say is that the situation of women and other people who are not white males in a household has dramatically changed, right, since the founding, and um, and there was a history and tradition of of husbands being able to discipline their wives uh, and uh, to control every aspect of their existence, which is the bread and butter of the domestic and violence abuser is to control the people who are subject to their abuse. And so the court is gonna just, I, I, it, it cannot, you know, because of what you just said in, in the setup to this discussion, I don't see how they can totally lay in to that history and tradition chest, test when so much has changed. And that it just seems, and, and the, um, I was just looking at some statistics that in since um, 2018, there's been this really quite substantial increase in the numbers of murders using firearms by uh, in domestic violence situations. So it, you know, I, and, and that was my objection to the Bruin case too, because the court said, oh, all that stuff about gun violence is totally irrelevant to this analysis. I mean, that just seems to be just not, you know, using common sense. Um, and so I, I just think they're going to have to confront the limitations of that history and tradition test in this case. I totally agree. They're going to have to confront it, but it, it seems implausible to me that these justices didn't consider this when they were writing Bruin, right? They had to know that once they laid out this history and tradition test, that they were going to get these sorts of challenges. So it's I, I can't imagine they didn't see it coming. And that's why I'm so fascinated with how they're going to wrestle with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think it it really will be very interesting. So the one thought I have on that is that um I wasn't able to find the specific language uh, this morning when I was thinking about these things, but part of the Heller and McDonald cases rested on, you know, the second amendment protects the right of the law abiding citizen to have a firearm for protection. Right. And so um, the argument, one argument would be here is that, you know, obviously this person who is subject to a domestic violence restraining order is not your law abiding citizen. And therefore, um, you know, the carve outs for public safety, sensitive locations, all of that might apply to say, yes, these constraints are okay. I could see that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say about this is that when Justice Barrett was on the Seventh Circuit, um, she had, there was a case involving the rule about felons that you alluded to. Mm -hmm. And, um, and there, 
and the felony that the person had committed in that case, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of the case, but um, was, uh, you know, some kind of financial fraud crime or something like that. And so, and she said, well, this isn't the kind of crime to which this rule of barring gun ownership should apply. Um, you know, but then, you know, my response to that is Skinner v. Oklahoma, right? Where the court, where there, that was involved that Oklahoma statute that allowed sterilization of felons, except for the white collar criminals. So I would, I sort of, you know, I'm not sure um, that that is, uh, it seems somewhat logical, but it, it could be, you know, the subject of a lot of discriminatory decisions. A really good point. I think you you alluded to this sort of in the in the beginning of your response and something that's troubled me about this case and Dobbs in a similar way is sort of the lack of um, under or appreciation for like what are the immediate impacts of of a ruling in in this direction right like their their societal impacts Brennan always reminds me that that the courts aren't supposed to be sort of thinking about the the societal impacts and that's the job of the legislator. But obviously we know when something has a, a constitutional amend, uh, um, sort of right to us ascribed to it, it's a very difficult legislative process to fix. So when, when you think, or when you evaluate sort of how these decisions go, how much does that go into your thinking on it? Like, well, we know what's going to happen and the justices should be more or should weigh that more heavily than strictly the technicalities of the law. So the um I, I think that's that's a very good question. So I think Justice Breyer was kind of when he was on the court, he was kind of the um ultimate pragmatist, right? You know, what is this law, you know, trying to do? And um, should we give the legislature, you know, some runway, right, to address what everyone agrees is a very bad societal problem? And uh, and so that was, I, you know, I think that really informed a lot of the way he decided cases. And so um, the I would say that um, it really some of it comes down to who decides, right? about what is the proper thing for government to be doing in some of these situations. Um, you know, should the court, you know, actually give some running room to um, the legislative bodies to address these current issues? Or is the court just going to be there saying, no, no, we have these bright lines. And uh, even though a lot of things may have changed, you know, we you can't do anything more than you could have done in 1789. And so, um, or, you know, that was in the minds of the framers in 1789. So I think that that's really, um, you know, I, I think that's just, re that's really the question, who decides in some of these situations? Really good question. Uh, I want to move on to the racial, gerryman uh, racial gerrymandering case. Uh, this is Alexander of the South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. And in this case, the a lower court threw out a congressional gerrymander because they said that it was based on race, that they had moved these black voters around in order to dilute their, the power of their vote. 
the Republican legislature in South Carolina countered and saying it wasn't based on race. It was actually just based on politics. We wanted to ensure that this that this district was for Republicans. And Supreme Court precedent has said that you can gerrymander based on race, but you can gerrymander based on politics, essentially. So I'm curious. This is one of those to me. This seems like very proxy almost either way. Like no matter who's doing the gerrymander, you can say, oh, it's because traditionally race and political affiliation have been so aligned, you can just mask racial gerrymanders by saying that it's a political gerrymander. So as always, Professor Landers, curious on your thoughts. No, I mean, I agree with you. I think your um, your your setup really, uh, you know, illustrates the issues quite well. And I actually think in some ways it's the same kind of issue that was presented in the Students for Fair Admission case, right? So, you know, on the one hand, the court is saying, oh, you know, anti-discrimination is so important, but you really can't think about the racial composition of anything when you're making admission decisions, because that would be discriminatory. So, and I, you know, and I think they've, they've kind of boxed themselves in a little bit here with that um, earlier case, the Wisconsin case, I think it was with about, you know, how the court's going to, you know, take it, its hands off the political gerrymandering issues, which, you know, I, I kind of think was a mistake too. Um, and not and, and and I think they had at that time they had an opportunity to to do kind of a bipartisan thing because there was a North Carolina case where the Democrats had essentially done the same thing. And they could have said, hey, look, guys, play fair. You know, everybody needs to play fair. And they didn't do that. And so now they have this problem. And um, and so I, and I think it's um it's going to be maybe give us some hints about the future of some of these, you know, college admissions or workplace, you know, DE&I challenges that are coming down the pike. They're going to give us some insight because the, um, you know, if the, um, if you can't, because of this, um, you know, convergence of race with other sort of non-racial factors. So for example, um, you know, there's a case in the Fourth Circuit um, involving that Thomas Jefferson High School, which is the, um, uh, you know, kind of one of these premier elite public high schools in Virginia. And, you know, they changed the high school changed its admission criteria uh, and are relying on things like, you know, you know, admitting, you know, student a certain percentage of students from every middle school in the district, um, you know, factoring it income, all these things that in the past the court has said have been okay. And the result of reliance on that um, is that it changed the racial composition of the entering class of the school. And so the people, you know, the Asian American students who previously had a lot of advantages because, you know, they went to, some of them went to preferred high schools and that sort of thing um, are challenging this saying, you know, well, you know, we have fewer people now, we, we have, uh, you know, reduced representation in the class. And so that's discrimination against us. So anyway, so, uh, you know, my point is that, you know, some of these factors like income, you know, zip code where people live because of, you know, racial segregation and housing and all these sorts of things make some of these factors actually not neutral. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the same thing for, um, you know, political affiliation too, in some contexts. Right. And I think this case is particularly interesting in light of the course, the 
decision in Allen v. Milligan and the Alabama Congressional yes. the Voting Rights Act from last term that surprisingly came out 5-4 to retain like this, the I think it was Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and so this obviously isn't the same issue, but I'm curious if it breaks down along similar lines. Yeah, no, I I I think that's right because I I do think you know even though um, it's true that you know the the first thing on their minds probably shouldn't be how is the public going to react to these things, you know if you kind of look at the history of what the court has done over time, it's fairly well tracked with you know majority political opinion most of the time, and um, so you know because they can't get too either too out ahead of people or stay too far behind because then people just say forget it i'm not gonna listen to what they're saying yeah 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 and i think justice roberts in particular it seems to be at least on the conservative side the one that cares the most about it which makes sense it being the chief right right i think he does care a great deal about that right and that almost I keep couch this stuff well, even with like the Obama healthcare stuff in like legal opinions. But even last term, it seemed like he he was like, "We're we're I know we're getting rid of affirmative action. Maybe we should leave the voting rights." Like, right? No, no, exactly. And then um, the other one is, um, you know, even in Dobbs, right? He wrote the concurrence saying, right. "Hey, you know, look, just uphold this statute. Don't yeah. throw the whole this whole you know line of jurisprudence out the window by doing that. We can uphold the statute without." you know, you know, upsetting all of this law. So, right. Yeah. yeah I mean, his opinion, I think, makes a lot of logical sense read, read in that. And he was just like, I am just not as morally certain as my colleagues on either side seem to be. And I was like, well, that seems fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So Professor Landers humbly said that she wasn't a First Amendment expert, but where she really is an expert is in administrative law. And I would say that even though the first, second, 14th Amendment cases are maybe more interesting generally. If I had to define what the this term seems to be about, it seems to be about administrative law. And two cases that are similar in a lot of ways are the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, versus Jarkesy. 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 And the Consumer and Financial Protection Bureau versus the Community Financial Services Association of America, CFPB. So as Professor Landers said earlier, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, was put in place post the Great Depression, I think you said 1934, uh, to kind of try to prevent what had just happened in the Great Depression. And very similarly, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was put in place in 2012, largely at the the direction of Senator Warren, uh, in response to a lot of what happened in the Great Recession. So these are kind of government-created, congressionally-created administrative agencies designed to try to prevent some of like the worst of what we've seen in our financial system. There are challenges to both of these systems, arguing that, that our funding mechanisms are unconstitutional. And obviously- the CFB, CFPB case, right, yeah. Right. Uh, but obviously like if, and this is what some of the justices were asking, because this case was just argued a week ago. And this is what some of the justices were asking. Like, if you say that this is unconstitutional, like, we're going to have a serious problem with a lot of administrative agencies here. And what are we going to do with all of the rulings that have happened with the CFPB in the last decade? Not even not even getting into, like, the SEC. Like, how, how does that go forward? So uh, 
fascinating to see how these come out, Professor. What, what are you thinking about these cases? Yeah, so I think um, the CFPB, so first of all, I will say about both of these cases, you know, so you're a litigant and you get in the crosshairs or you're representing a group of uh, litigants like the, um, you know, the, or, the organization of, you know, lenders, the community lenders, um, which I'm not quite sure they're community lenders um, or community representatives, but um, you know, you you get in the crosshairs of these administrative agencies. And so, you know, you, you know, obviously, um, Jarkezi, you know, if you read about the activities of his company, it's not a pretty picture, right? And so, um, and so then you start looking for, you know, you can't win on the facts of your case because you've clearly violated all these laws that make a lot of good sense. Right. Um, so then you start looking around for what else can I do to get out from under this? And so then, you know, and then, you know, um, happily for them, you know, there are a lot of, you know, legal academics and others who have been promoting these kind of, you know, we have to have these limitations on the administrative state. It's gotten out of control. We have to go back to the good old days where it was just courts and, you know, the Congress and the president and not all of these agencies, right? So um, so I think that's the first thing is that you just start looking around for, um, you know, theories that might help you avoid legal liability in these situations. Um, second, um, you know, I was reading, um, you know, some summaries of the Solicitor General's argument in the CFPB case. And, you know, there are a lot of agencies that operate on this basis that's outside the, you know, typical annual appropriations process. Um, so, you know, the FDA is one of those agencies, right? Because Congress made this big point of trying to shift a lot of burden to the uh, pharmaceutical and device industries for, um, you know, the costs of the regulatory oversight, um, the um, health care fraud and abuse prosecutions, many, you know, all these, um, uh, you know, forfeiture, asset forfeiture thing, uh, you know, provisions uh, and fines, portions of which go to fund future law enforcement activities. I mean, you know, they're just myriad, myriad examples of this because, you know, Congress recognized that you know, they wanted to have like this continuous ability for the government to engage in these activities and not have it be so totally tied to the annual appropriations process. So, um, so, so I think in some ways, if they decide, I think it would be a really radical decision for them to decide that this, this structure is wrong, then, then you would have to ask, oh, well, is the financing of the Federal Reserve inappropriate? Because that's another, that's the user fee system. And, you know, there are a lot of banking people in the banking industry who'd say, that'd be great if we got rid of the Federal Reserve, right? But you can't really go back in times because time anymore because the Federal Reserve is kind of integral to the stability of the financial markets globally, not just in the United States. So, you know, taking a radical position on this would be, I think, really quite destabilizing in a lot of ways. But Assuming they did that, you know, they decided they want to stay within their, you know, little bright lines um, on these things and say, you know, you know, you can't do that. Congress has to appropriate the money every year. 
So then the question becomes, what is the remedy? And a few years ago, um, you know, this comes up all the time, especially in the appointments clause cases, which we'll get to when we get to Jarkezi, right? Um, which is, um, you know, what should be the remedy? And, you know, the, you know, one of the catastrophic remedy would be, oh, everything the agency has ever done is therefore void because, you know, the structure was, you know, unconstitutional. The court has never done that. Okay. What the court has done has said, okay, this party, you know, who had the initiative to challenge this, they get the relief, but now Congress and the agency have an opportunity to fix whatever the constitutional defect it is, but we're not going to throw out everything the agency has ever done. You know, there's this sort of principle of, um, of regularity that, you know, a presumption of regularity um, that the court, you know, adheres to, and that would sort of insulate all the prior decisions from, you know, any kind of legal challenge. Right. And that would make it certainly easier if you, if these, if this court decided that they wanted to get rid of it, it wouldn't be quite as right. devastating as I think the Solicitor General kind of tried to paint the picture as. Right. Um, but then in Jarkezi, so Jarkezi has three claims, right? So one of his claims is that, um, you know, having this administrative adjudication system violates the Seventh Amendment because, you know, he essentially committed common law fraud, even though he violated all these statutes that kind of codified that common law fraud. And therefore, it's a violation of his Seventh Amendment right to a civil jury trial. Um, his second is that the delegation of the choice to the agency to either pursue an administrative enforcement action or to take the person to federal court um, is a, you know, it, it doesn't have a, um, uh, you know, a sufficient limiting principle so that it, that's an unconstitutional delegation by Congress. And then the third thing is that, um, that the administrative law judges who decide these uh, administrative, it, you know, conduct these administrative hearings uh, there um, because they are appointed um, and um, are, 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 you know, cannot be removed except for cause when they, in theory, you know, respond to the Social Secu the uh, Securities and Exchange Commissioners or the Merit Systems Protection Board, which is the disciplinary body, which both of the members of which <clears throat> cannot be removed except for cause there's you know there's this you know argument that and the court has said in another case that these double layers of four clause removal petition uh, uh provisions are unconstitutional so the argument is therefore that's unconstitutional so yeah. what do i think about that yeah. so i think this is where this going to be this going to be a very practical thing right because um there are, uh, you know, just take, you know, another agency that has a lot of administrative adjudications conducted by administrative judges. Um, you have um, the Social Security Administration, right? Hundreds of thousands of cases, right? Every year, right? Um, then you have, um, you know, the immigration system. Now, they are not ALJs, but nevertheless, you know, thousands of cases, uh, and then you get to the SEC, which also, you know, quite a number of cases, probably not as massive as those other two agencies. Um, the, you know, the Supreme Court is probably not going to render a decision which is going to send all those matters into the federal district courts. The courts would be just overwhelmed. This is, you know, these administrative agencies are actually, you know, 
you know, creating some efficiencies, although, you know, I would be the first to say administrative processes are not necessarily efficient. Um, and that you just can't have the federal courts deciding all these cases. It's, it's just not practical. So no, I, makes just, yeah. yeah. I, I think one thing you said earlier was how the court does, even though that they say that they don't, does seem to kind of move in line with public perception. And one, what's interesting to me about these cases together is that they're very anti-administrative state, anti what you would call kind of like big government, anti-deep state. But like we're seeing a lot of that rhetoric, or we have seen that in the last five, 10 years in particular, on like the Republican side of like, the, the state is just too big. And, and obviously, President Trump has champion this like the deep state and it's just interesting to me i don't know if like if you, you thought about that at all how it seems now like not only hearing it politically we're also seeming to see it legally yeah no and i mean i mean that's what i was sort of trying to allude to you know that some scholars have taken up this um you know this this call to action and um you know i don't know i just think it's um so first of all i have two thoughts about it one is that i think in the modern world, if you look at any functioning, and arguably our democracy isn't functioning too well right at this moment in time, but um, but if you look at any sort of reasonably functioning democracy, you know, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of big government, right? Just because the world is complex, you know, you have to get benefits to people, you have to decide if they deserve the benefits, you have to give them the right to challenge if they think that they were unfairly denied and properly denied the benefits. Um, and so, um, you know, that's just one thing. And then all these, you know, regulatory schemes to promote, you know, the financial stability of markets, uh, prevent abusive, um, you know, corporate practices, I know, you know, workplace safety, all of these things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but the history of the private sector doing the right thing always in these areas is just not a good one, right? You need the government. And, um, and, and it's going to be a big government because the activities themselves are massive now. And so you need a government that's capable of responding to that. And, you know, even at the size of the federal government we have now, you know, there's a lot of under enforcement of a lot of these regulatory provisions that some people, you know, on the Republican side, they, you know, the, the anti-administrative state people don't like. And so I'm not sure that, um, you know, I think it's a lot of crying wolf, actually, myself. And I mean, in Jarkazi, I mean, you know, I mean, the, you know, like myriad misrepresentations in his business practices. Why should he get away with this? Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, it's it's something that Ricky has said repeatedly, where, where he said like you you kind of need these structures in, in place because when it comes to these, we're we're talking kind of market based things, but even we're talking about like natural resources, like the private sector just hasn't had a good history of doing it on their own. So it's it's a fair point, which I will concede to both of you. Yeah. Yeah. No. But the but on the other hand, you know, and I would say I'm not one of these people that think, thinks the government's always perfect. I mean, I think we have to complete, you know, continually challenge them. And on the, you know, on that side of the scale, I would point to, you know, like the Flint, Michigan water crisis. That was all government. But again, it was like trying to do things on the cheap. The Jackson, Mississippi water crisis. It's not clear to me today that they have a functioning water system. And it's been, you know, I don't know, a year more. I mean, this is like crazy, right? right. Uh, now. Um, and so, 
Um, so I, you know, I think that, you know, government is not perfect either. So it's just this, you know, transparency and accountability aspect of things. That I think it's really important. Uh, the other big agency that I neglected to mention, which I would be remiss if I didn't mention as we're coming up on November, is the Veterans Administration, right? I don't think anybody's saying, oh, we should get rid of that, right? And not do veterans benefits or operate the veterans hostels or anything. No one's saying that, right? So... Well, yeah, no one's saying that. But what you're saying is that like a, a particular decision on these lines would put the Veterans Administration in the same bucket potentially as like the SEC or. Yeah. Right. OK, uh, last case uh, that I wanted to get into was, again, this is another kind of administrative law case where it's Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. Uh, this is th the issue here is for a long time, the Supreme Court has gone with this doctrine called like the Chevron deference. And that comes from a case, Chevron versus National Resources Defense Council many years ago, I think 1984, and where it said that, like, if a statute is ambiguous, we'll let the administrative agency make that decision. And like, we'll, we'll kind of give the deference to the administrative agency to figure out what Congress was, was saying on, on when it's ambiguous. In this case, Congress said that for fisheries, uh, like for fishermen, fisher people, like whatever, when they're going out- Commercial fishing, yes, yeah. Commercial fishing, yeah. When they're going out, they have to have, they have to allow kind of monitors on board to make sure that there's not overfishing. What, that's what the statute essentially said. What the administrative agency kind of interpreted was, all right, well, now these commercial fishermen have to pay for these monitors. And the commercial fishermen are saying, like, that's that's not what the statute says. And like, they shouldn't get the deference to decide that. So- this is the question really becomes how much deference. And that's why I think this case pairs a little bit well with the administrative agency cases. Like how much deference are we going to give these administrative agencies? So it would upend really 40 years of what the court has done. But as you said, the court doesn't really seem to care about that these days. No. So, and I think that there have been, well, so first of all, I will say that um, justices um, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were famously inhospitable to the Chevron deference doctrine when they were on the courts of appeals. Um, so, um, you know, now they're going to have to, you know, decide, you know, what that really means now that they're in a position to actually, you know, say we're going to continue with that or not. The other um, development that has been coming along has been the court's use of that major questions doctrine that, um, you know, kind of has been percolating along. I think the first time I really noticed it was in the um, first case on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, which you mentioned earlier, um, Brandon, the um, where, um, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, was it that case? No, yeah, yeah, it was that case where Chief Justice Roberts was like, oh, you know, Congress, you know, this is like a really big change in the Medicaid program, right? We can't, we, you know, we can't have this. And, but, you know, but that was Congress doing it, right? And then we have um, in the, another one of the challenges to the Affordable King, uh, Care Act, the King v. Burwell case about the tax subsidies for, um you know, whether they could be paid to people who bought insurance on federal exchanges as opposed to state exchanges. And the court upheld the subsidies payable on the federal exchanges, but said, 
it's our decision. And we've decided that that's what Congress really meant. And we can't leave a decision of that magnitude to the agencies involved. Right. So, and you know, so when was that case? Like, you know, 2015 or something. Right. So this has been going on for, um, you know, hints of this, you know, kind of emerging trend of the court kind of trying to, um, cabin, you know, the, the range of discretion that the administrative agencies have exercised. So I would say two things about that. One is that it's kind of a red herring to say that the agencies have taken power from Congress. Congress can always take it back if they don't like what the agencies have done. And in fact, they've shown an, a propensity to do that recently, which, you know, when President Trump took office, they used the Congressional Review Act to rescind 17 different, 17, 13 different agency regulations, you know, on day, you know, practically day one of the congressional session. It wasn't day one, but, you know, metaphorically speaking. And then, uh, and then when Biden came to office, they did it again. I mean, the number was much smaller. It was like three or four. But um, so they're capable, you know, Congress is capable of taking the power back. Um, now, you know, Congress has, you know, a lot of dysfunctionality, but, you know, if there's a really, you know, kind of searing issue, they're capable of dealing with it. And um, and so it goes back to the earlier point that I made, this really this question about who decides. And I would say, you know, on the range of decision makers, you know, it's like impossible for Congress to decide should the fisher people pay or should we increase the appropriation to fisheries and wildlife to support the payment, the existence of these monitors on the ship, right? Um, and, you know, there are a lot of arguments why the government should pay, right? We pay for the meat inspectors, right, to be in the meat packing plants when they're in operation. So maybe this is kind of an analogy there. Uh, but they didn't say anything about that. And the agency's like, well, we have to do something. So we're going to make the, you know, fishing industry pay. Um, so the you know the question is you know really who yeah you know, so Congress is just not going to decide all these details of these laws that it passes it's just not capable of doing it and capable of monitoring you know what happens when they decide should we change should we tweak it should we not tweak it the agency is capable of doing that um, second um, uh, you know in, in terms of if the objection is that the agencies are less politically accountable than Congress which I agree that that's probably true. Um, they are certainly more politically accountable than the federal judiciary. And so why is it that it's a better idea for the judges to decide, should we have the monitors and should they, who should pay? Or um, are these, is this stream connected to these other waterways that are part of the navigable waters of the United States? I mean, honestly, it just defies logic that, you know, you have these justices who probably haven't taken a science class, you know, since they were in high school, you know, second guessing the agency. So anyway, so I mean, so that's what I think about this. But, you know, I think there's, you know, kind of, you know, this this seems like a convenient vehicle for upending the Chevron doctrine because it doesn't it doesn't have that word. It's not of the order of magnitude of some of those other decisions like is it part of the navigable waters or not? It's just like, oh, who pays, right? So it doesn't seem that big. So I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, if I had to predict, I would say Chevron might be on its last legs here. But yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is that 
um, Justice Jackson is recused from Loper because she was on the D.C. Circuit when Loper was Loper was decided. So just this week, the court added the First Circuit case that is the same as the yes. Loper case, which is called Relentless against Department of Commerce. Yes. So, yeah. And I think to your point that they added that because if they're going to upend 40 years of precedent, let's at least have all nine justices be part of that decision, which I, I actually greatly appreciate from, from yeah. the court's perspective. Yeah, um, I was I was very puzzled that they only, you know, that they didn't take the, you know, First Circuit, that they didn't sort of reach out and take that when they granted cert on Loper as well, because that just seemed, you know, it was the same, same issue. So, right. I, and I think what will be really interesting for me to watch is that I think there are good conservative arguments for and against this, like the conservative argument to be like, hey, judges shouldn't be deciding, like we should, should like judicial deference here, like stay in our lane. On the other hand, there's the conservative argument, like the major questions doctrine of, well, Congress is just giving up too much power to the, this administrative state. So I think I, I can kind of see a split where Ricky and I have talked in President, as you know, well, like the split often between like the three conservative justices and the other three conservative justices, I could see that kind of coming in play to this case as well. Um, but as, as you alluded to that, that splits often changes because Kavanaugh and Gorsuch might be together. All right. Uh, we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, but is there anything else that you are looking at besides those cases that we discussed? Um, well, yeah, you know, there's one more, which is, um, which is kind of in a way a little bit of a sleeper, which is the Atchison Hotels against Lawfare case, which is the one about um, whether um, a, um, a a tester, you know, for, you know, to test, you know, whether an entity is complying with the, um, um, in this case, the uh, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act requirements or, you know, any civil rights law, basically, could have standing to challenge, you know, non-compliance if the tester is merely testing and has no intention of, you know, actually using the facility. And so, um, you know, and I think that, you know, the problem there is, you know, and, and this, the person, the, the lawfare person was somebody who, um, you know, has like brought like, I don't know, 600 lawsuits or something like that, because she just sits on the internet and kind of, you know, finds, you know, whether, you know, this little inn somewhere has the disclosure about are they accessible or not to people with various uh, disabilities. So, you know, this is one of those bad facts makes bad, could make bad law kind of cases. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, you know, you know, Suffolk University has a huge housing testing clinic, right? Yes. Housing yes. discrimination testing clinic. And that, you know, that's how you catch people um, who have no intention of complying with the laws they don't like. And so um, I, I, I think this is a sleeper one that could have big implications if the court, you know, decides in favor of the hotel. Yeah, that's definitely a case that I had flagged too, but I, I'm wondering if they're even going to get there with if it's moot or not. But yeah, we'll, exactly. We'll... No, no, that's that's exactly right. And then, you know, then we, we, we won't even say anything about the lawyer who was bringing all these cases on her behalf, who has now, you know, fallen onto all kinds of disrepute. But anyway, um, and then, um, you know, I, I think those are the... I, I don't know, the major cases. I mean, I'm sure that there are some on the criminal side of the docket that, you know, will be significant, but I, I'm not, I'm just certainly not a total expert on those, so. And then know. one other thing you had highlighted for me was whether or not the court decides to take the Mifepristone cases. Oh, that yeah. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to because the court has, you know, overturned, you know, a a major decision of a major federal agency. And I think that, um, you know, regardless of what, you know, how people feel about abortion or whatever, I think the stakes are like incredibly high on that one because the, um, you know, you know that there is a problem when the entire pharmaceutical and medical device industries have come down on the side of the government in a case because (laughs) they're like, okay, we just cannot have this where, you know, a judge says after 20 years of safe use of a product, oh no, you can't do it anymore. You know, we, we we invest billions of dollars in developing these products. You just cannot do that. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And it's not, again, I'm not saying the FDA is perfect because obviously they're not, right? And in fact, there are all these articles recently in the paper about how, um, well, what is it, red dye number two, right? Is is banned in cosmetics, but can still be used in food. And the, and the, and it's, <laughs> and the FDA has, you know, has a very dysfunctional food regulatory section. And I think the current commissioner is really trying to get on top of it. Um, so, you know, I, I would agree that they're not perfect, but it's certainly better than me making some decision about, oh, should that product be on the market? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll definitely keep an eye to see if the Supreme Court grants start to, to hear the, those cases. But uh, we hope this was informative for everyone it certainly was for ricky and i and so first landers we greatly appreciate your time i know i know personally like how busy you are and how many things you take on so the fact that you were able to give us so much of your time and expertise is we really appreciate it well no i really appreciate the invitation i'm so excited that the two of you are doing this i think it's just it's an incredible service happy to come back anytime Well, I I really can't stress enough how fun that was for me. I love Professor Landers and she's just so smart. And the fact that she gave us so much of her time and insight into some of these cases, continue to feel very lucky. Um, Did you have any, any thoughts on all, all of her, all of her thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it was, I, 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 I one, I really appreciate that we do these things on video because I can sort of watch your gears turn as you're, as you're digesting. And honestly, I learned uh, a, a ton there. I thought, I, I thought it was interesting, or I like, I felt like I had some big theme takeaways and the, the one that she really, I think emphasized that I don't know that I had sort of thought of in terms of like connecting the dots um, was this idea of like respecting prior precedent, obviously, with the Dobbs case that came up a ton, but she did a really good job of sort of explaining like where this is creeping in, in other areas and how it can be very difficult um, to, or, or or just kind of the implications of, of this sort of new way of doing things that, that is kind of a departure from, from how the courts have done things in the past. Um, Sure. And, when we had Professor McDonald on for his episodes, he said the same thing. He was normally like the judges on either side, on either side of like the legal spectrum will at least pay like some lip service to precedent and like in stare decisis. And he, what he said, he was like, this court just doesn't seem to care. Uh, and that's, I think, troubling for a lot of legal scholars and lawyers because 
the foundation of the legal system is that like you pretty much know what's going to happen because of all of this precedent. And it's I, I do think it's a little bit scary for many people when that just gets upended and it becomes you, you don't know what the next year is going to bring in terms of like legal doctrine. I think obviously the other hand, the Justice Thomas view of the world is if and I've said this before, if something is wrong, we should change it. Precedent be damned. Yeah. And I, and I think and I think that like right and, and we've pointed out previous cases that were you know decided in the in the set, or early 1800s or uh, that were clearly antithetical to to you know what the sort of point of either text in the Constitution or or or, or what have you were written um, and then it makes sense to overturn them and and I think there are those like big philosophical areas that after some serious thought like it it would make sense to do that and then there's sort of this broad spectrum of areas where doing that really creates potentially more harm or or chaos even than than it would and and i i mean i think i think thinking about sort of the different areas right so starting with the second amendment case in terms of how that might upend how we traditionally think states can manage gun rights in a way that people still have access to guns, but you're trying to prevent people from, you know, killing other people. Domestic violence was in this specific uh, instance, but really, I think more broadly, which is what the kind of the Bruin case opened up, right? And then all the way to what you had brought up towards the end there, the um, the uh, the sort of medication abortion drug that recently by a court was uh, removed from like a list of uh, of safe safe medications and the implication there obviously sort of that drug had wide application and people were using it regularly but also more broadly as she said like the kind of the entire pharmaceutical industry got together and was like this is a bad idea and that's because of you rely on you know all of your things are geared towards fda testing and as long as you get that then you're good to go and now all of a sudden you have to get FDA testing and then potentially like convince a collection of judges somewhere that, okay, beyond our scientific thing, that this is also safe because of whatever. And that creates a whole another mess. And I, I think it, it's like a broader, it, it feels like this is like a broader uh, conversation that's going on. And it really, it like immediately, I thought of the prisoner exchange deal with Iran and how we agreed effectively to unfreeze $6 billion of money that they had in our banks in, in exchange for these hostages. But then following what happened, we sort of did an about face on that. And just the this idea that people op, people really, I don't know, but we've talked about doing a fairness episode before. And I think at, at some point we have to, but just narrowing the topics is going to be so hard. But just this idea that like, if we know the rules, we can play by them. And if we, and you know, whoever breaks the rules, they don't get ahead and right. But when we're also making the rules and then breaking our own rules, then all of a sudden it becomes very, very challenging uh, from business, from individuals, for all, like on all across the spectrum. Sorry. Yeah. I, no, I mentioned this already. I do think it's a it's a real reckoning and debate within conservative legal circles because what have conservative lawyers, what's kind of they propounded for a long time this idea that like 
the, the judges shouldn't be making the decisions, right? Like we shouldn't have that. We've cried for years of activist courts who have gone beyond what judges should be doing. But now we're kind of seeing when it's like, oh, our activists, like we're getting rid of our, like the, the things that we don't like, I, that this is where you have, in my opinion has always been like, you have to remain consistent. You can't have it one way when the other side's doing it. And then when your side is doing it, being like, well, you did it. So we're going to do it. It's a, whatever to tie it all back. It's the same thing we talked about with like the judge's confirmation process or the impeachment processes, like these things just, I'm just asking for some consistency here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, 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 truly. And it's, um, and it seems apparently it's a lot to ask for. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems like it these days, but whatever. I think, I, I think Professor Landers, in addition to breaking down some of these specific cases, I, I really appreciated how, and I, I'm glad you picked up on it, like these threads that she was able to draw through all of the cases, kind of where the, the, the court and also all of our courts seem to be right now. Yeah. And then maybe the last thing I'll say was, was another beautiful through line, this just idea of who decides and where, uh, Right. A lot of these cases had to do with whether or not Congress had abdicated too much of their responsibility yes. to decide. And right. That these are the challenges to the uh, Consumer Protection Bureau for 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 one. And that. And I think that this is like an interesting area because we've kind of gone back and forth on this. And honestly, over the years, I think you've worn me down and I'm, I'm kind of more on the idea that it it is important for judges to uphold the laws as they're written because we don't want them going by their personal beliefs. It's kind of the whole point. And yet we're in this, we live in this era where Congress is, I mean, inept is like a nice way, it's like in a nice word. So now what do we, what do we do? Um, but I, 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 I think that that, and then, and then just sort of this broader notion that the court, while it shouldn't be in, explicitly adhering to sort of where society wants these things to go it has to kind of recognize that um but yeah it, it, i think it just makes for like a really interesting uh era that we we live in yeah and to come back to where we started i know that this term of the supreme court it doesn't have nearly the attention on it that the previous two terms did but like this stuff matters and I'm, I'm like kind of hopeful Ricky we had talked about this on previous episodes where even though people have been very upset with the court in recent years for a myriad of reasons the benefit to that just like the benefit of Trump being in politics was that like it seemed like all eyes were on the court now right it, it seemed like more people were invested in like th- reading about and thinking about like the issues at the court and I hope that we get that for this term too, because like these cases, as you have consistently pointed out, they they have real life consequences. They really matter. And just because you don't have the headline of abortion or affirmative action doesn't mean that these really are not going to matter as much in, or more in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, totally. I I do fear that because they won't get the same type of media attention that a lot of these uh decisions will kind of go by the wayside. I I feel like I wanted to add one, my last takeaway, one of the things that, that she sort of started, or that you had kind of alluded to in terms of what, what, what she was looking forward to. And it seemed like she was sort of saying that like the, you know, the justices are going to get to know each other more. And that's something that I hadn't really ever considered when thinking about Supreme court justices, but 
you know, as soon as she said that, I was like, yeah, I mean, I bet Scalia and Ginsburg weren't like best friends on day one. It took some time for them to hear each other out, listen to their opinions and their reasoning and stuff like that. And and I I think that that's probably like an understated way of, you know, or sort of an under appreciated aspect of the court that as they're sort of together for longer, they start to maybe act more cohesively um, in a way that allows them to be persuaded by other people's arguments that maybe on day one, they're like, you know what, I'm never going to switch my opinion on, on XYZ thing, which is kind of what you want and maybe sort of a benefit that I probably never thought of, of sort of longer terms serving uh, in courts. Yeah, it's a really fair point. All right. Well, yeah. Again, we have that uh, we we continue to get guests that that um, educate us and and uh, sort of motivate us to learn more things, but also um, that are just yeah, like you said earlier, awesome. <laughs> yeah, truly a treat. So I, I appreciate first liners, appreciate you, and appreciate everyone listening. Indeed. Till next time, buddy. See you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share like American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lion's head. Folks of different minds because 
we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks a different mind Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz